This evening's talk is about equanimity. And we'll begin with a few moments as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with the Bodhisatta or the Bodhisattva, this just about to be Buddha on that now famous night as he was uh, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence. So settling into your seat comfortably. As though we're, again, sitting with this just about to be Buddha. As he was protected within the the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of exploration accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and the flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night, as though he with he w- as though he were an immovable mountain with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive, open hearted presence. In Taos, New Mexico, where I live, we have what is considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one amongst many mountains that surround the Taos Valley. This sacred mountain is actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north edge of the town of Taos. This particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people, and it's also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the good fortune to be able to look out at it and to take it in in every season, any time of the day or night, on any day of the year, as it's clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, or any mountain, just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall on it, snow covers it at times, lightning strikes it once in a while, fires sometimes rage on it, all sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering. The mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy, a lively energy, but only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on, isn't attached or averse to anything. We might say that it lets life live through it, closing off to nothing, holding on to nothing. And all of this happens 
with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so we begin our exploration of upekka. Equanimity is a powerful force in our practice, a powerful force in the whole of our life. And in the Buddha's teachings, it's included as one of the ten paramis, or the ten perfections. It's also one of the four Brahma-viharas, one of the four divine abidings. Unconditional loving kindness, compassion, joy or um, appreciative or empathetic joy and equanimity. It's also one of the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness, investigation, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And it's one of the two jhana factors that are present in the fourth jhana, those two factors being ikagata, one-pointedness, and equanimity. Upeka, or equanimity, was the final factor to come into maturity before Gautama Buddha attained full awakening. As this about-to-be Buddha, sat under the Bodhi tree on that now famous night. With an evenness and balance in his very relaxed and powerful presence, as he sat there with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. Seeing things clearly with his perfectly concentrated mind, and relinquishing, letting go, relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind, and then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete end of suffering. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states, or as the Buddha sometimes called them, cankers, uh, have been destroyed temporarily destroyed, as happens through the development of concentration and then much more profoundly uh, through the deep concentration of jhana, or whose cankers have been completely destroyed, finally destroyed, as occurs in the, uh, in the final completion of our vipassana practice. And whose mind whose mind and heart abide in the natural state of purity in relationship to the desirable and the undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And some words about this from the Buddha. Here, a bhikkhu or a yogi or a meditator whose cankers are destroyed is neither overjoyed nor distraught at seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She or he dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the great strength and ease of the mind, the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of the Pali word upekka, or equanimity, 
uh, is, the literal translation is on looking. Equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, watching things as they arise, as they pass, on looking, seeing them fairly, without favoritism, without bias, without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of Vedna, in the realm of feelings, is neither painful nor pleasant feeling. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between the opposing forces of the mind, of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity sets off the weightiness of greed and the the weightiness of aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a child that I really loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw or what we called the teeter-totter with another child. Both of us would be suspended in our teeter-totter seat, perfectly balanced in mid-air. There was always a certain kind of happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside in the moments when this would happen. The poet T.S. Eliot said it beautifully. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and great strength of mind and heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a spoonful of salt in a cup of water. Because of the small container, the water becomes extremely salty, becomes harsh, it's undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put a spoonful of salt in a large body the size of Gaston Pond, it won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great wateriness or the great spaciousness that the salt is put into. Life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is, as we all know. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating this spaciousness of mind and heart with which we can meet and look on at all of life's experiences, as well as all of the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we see and know through our practice. To look on with balance, with equipoise, with what's often called the heart of greatness, and with what in the suttas is called in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, to look on with specific neutrality. So what what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, 
including at times the other three divine abidings or other immeasurables, metta, karuna, and mudita, including the various wholesome and beautiful states that are developed and arise in our concentration practice, and including the other six enlightenment factors, mindfulness investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration, that they are all met, they're all experienced and seen, looked on at through the mind of equanimity, the mind and heart of equanimity. The function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so Upeka manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful little book of teachings from Zen Master Dogen with with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the the monastery cook, the Tenzo, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And we, of course, can bring uh, this teaching immediately close Uh, right here and now in relationship to our cooks and the food here in this retreat. And also, we can bring this teaching into our life when we're back home. And this is from Dogen. Handle even a single leaf of green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. A dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients. Nor is is a soup inferior because you have made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly, with a pure mind, and without trying to evaluate their quality, in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. In practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, the mouth of a yogi, is like an oven. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and dried cow dung, now this is of course in Dogen's time, there was no natural gas or propane or electricity, they used dried cow dung to heat the stoves and ovens. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood and incense for incense and dried cow dung for cooking without distinction, our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So... How does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So a simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit, we're sitting, and we find that the mind is tranquil serene. And this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is. For instance, the breath at the anapana spot. The mind isn't listless, nor is it agitated, but rather it's interested and appropriately energized. At those times, there isn't any interest in or necessity for exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. 
In our practice, we just simply and clearly are recognizing and knowing without attachment that this is what's occurring. That these factors of mind are in place for maybe a very brief moment or maybe for longer. And this is actually something that contributes to the blossoming, this relationship to these experiences are something that contributes to the blossoming of the state or the factor of equanimity. This contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, to relate to all phenomena with equipoise and composure. During the time in the culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode was this. One is like a charioteer who looks on with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. More likely in our case, in our time, the metaphor might be one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity riding along in a car that's running evenly when it's set on cruise control. We're able to see and to know and to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by and to take it all in with ease. This quality, this factor of mind allows the process of practice the development of concentration and also the progress of insight to unfold without getting caught, without getting mired by the habits of mind that can stop things up, such as the various habits of clinging and attachment and identification that can create a block, that can create a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of the habits of attachment, identification, and aversion, and the comparing mind can be seen, known, and let go of, allowing concentration and understanding to blossom and deepen and to eventually mature. As we practice, we begin to taste equanimity along with the arising of all the other wholesome mental states such as patience and confidence and metta along with the developing vichara and piti and sukha and ikagata, one-pointedness, ikagata. And as each of you know, until equanimity is really, truly matured, we can lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, for the whole of the last two weeks of a long retreat that I was sitting, actually uh, down the hill at IMS, I practiced equanimity. And I practiced it in the way that it's practiced as a Brahma-vihara, as one of the divine abidings. Silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over and over again for these two weeks, first directing it to myself, and then on through all of the same categories that we use for metta practice. And this was the phrase that I used. I am the heir of my kama. Karma in Sanskrit, kama in Pali. I am the heir of my kama. Meaning I am the heir of all of my deeds, all of my actions of mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. By the end of those two weeks, there was quite a a deep and quiet sense of balance, a sense of evenness and neutrality in the heart and mind. 
And a day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, oh, there's, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, <clears throat> I wonder if there's an equanimity test. <laughs> if this was a Zen session or if this was a Zen retreat, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But, nah, this is a Vipassana retreat and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thought just disappeared. Well, later that day, I was startled in a true insight meditation fashion, an equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers, though the note was actually from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat. And the note said, we would like you to give the dana, the generosity talk, to the yogis tomorrow. Well, at that point, I was not teaching the Dhamma, had never taught the Dhamma, and I had no ambition to teach the Dhamma. For a moment, it felt like a long moment, equanimity flew right out the window, and my heart felt like it stopped, and the old habit of fear flew in. I can't. I can't do this now, said my old habit. I've been silent for so many weeks, so deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow yogis and speak. It's totally impossible. And then, after a few moments of that, the heart and the mind relaxed and saw what had just occurred a big aversion attack. And the thought came in, ah, this is my equanimity test. Of course. And I can do it. And and I want to do it. And at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and the heart. Gratitude for the teachers. Gratitude for the retreat, for the center staff. Gratitude for the teachings and gratitude for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. And what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. Until Upeka has matured, We lose and we regain our balance and our equipoise, the equipoise of equanimity, over and over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, quieting boredom and dislike and resentment and the self-judgment that can manifest maybe as guilt or disapproval or not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking and pride and attachment and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, as me, as my experiences. Equanimity also manifests as quieting the attachment and fear that comes up in relationship to others. Along the way of our practice, when equanimity has arisen and it's developing, in those moments, fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval or disapproval subside. Within the clear space of a momentary true neutrality, there's nothing for greed and nothing for aversion to stick to when they arise, or if they arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what's called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So, what does this mean, worldly-minded indifference? 
it occurs when we don't clearly see or when we don't clearly see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of a concentrated mindfulness rooted in kind-heartedness. And instead we are blindly seduced by and swept away in the happenings um, of life, including some of our inner experiences with our concentration practice. Seemingly, seemingly equanimous with it all. This isn't upekka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based on or produced by ignorance. And some words from the Buddha. On seeing a visible object with the eye or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught, ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning karma or kama, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was wonderfully direct, straightforward, and very succinct in his teaching. He didn't mince words. (laughs) So a personal story regarding this. When I first began living in Taos, New Mexico, There are many, many uh, beautiful handcrafted things in store windows in that town. And at times, uh, I would become quite infatuated with what I was seeing. And I would sometimes get caught uh, in the delusion of needing what I was seeing. That very painful contraction of the must-have mind. I, I must have that. So it happened enough times and I felt the discomfort of it all. So I decided to do a practice with this. So over time, I would walk along the street, the main street in town with all these shops, with these beautiful things in their shop windows. And I'd look in the windows at all these things. And I'd watch the process of my mind and heart. Took a while but I was very mindful because I took it on as a practice. Eventually, I was able to just appreciate the beauty of what I was seeing with appreciation for the amazing creative capacities of the human beings that made all the objects that I was seeing without the feeling of needing them, wanting them. It was a great relief. The Dalai Lama tells a story about being taken to a particular area in London by a friend. Uh, And as they walked along, uh, they passed various shops that sell all kinds of little tiny uh, mechanical parts, which is of particular interest and fascination to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And he said he found himself having some very strong inner a feeling of wanting them all. And then he said he realized that he didn't even know what any of them were for. (laughs) I'm sure that every one of us has experienced the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of, of greed or dislike or boredom or resentment or anger or fear or disappointment. This glossing over the ignorance, meaning ignoring these states, pretending to ourselves, the pretense of equanimity, the, well, it doesn't really matter attitude, or, well, it's, it's really all, really just fine attitude, or, 
I'm totally okay. Accompanied, maybe accompanied by a slight or maybe not so slight moving away from. A A contraction. An inner sense or maybe also an inner sense of grasping that we're probably not aware of in that moment. This, of course, is not equanimity, but is actually indifference, the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference, we could say, masquerading as upeka. And I think each one of us also knows from our own experience that when we're inflamed with greed or dislike or fear or grief or resentment, that it's extremely difficult or just isn't even at all possible to look on at those moments with a true equanimity. Upeka is based on an attentive, clear presence of mind. not on a dullness and indifference. It's not a kind of casual passing mood. And it's not produced by exertion. It's a result. It's one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the mind, training the heart through the development and the blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, concentration, Balanced effort, joy, tranquility, loving-kindness, and compassion. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these kind of flip-flops that we encounter in our mind in relationship to what are called the eight worldly winds these eight worldly winds of praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction and disrepute or disrespect or disregard. All of these worldly winds that come through and throughout our life. True equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes very harsh-feeling tests. And it's quickly able to regenerate its strength from our developed inner resources, the resources that we've developed through our diligent practice. And some words from the Buddha. Develop the mind of equilibrium. You will always be getting praise and blame. But don't let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness. Follow the absence of pride. There's an amazing practice that I've been told was and maybe still is occasionally practiced by the Hopi Indians. I do not recommend this practice but we can take it as a a metaphor for us uh, in relationship to the cultivation and the manifestation of the power of fearlessness and evenness of mind and heart and the protection that's one of the great strengths of equanimity. And this is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60, all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly towards an old man, singing with his eyes closed. Climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breech cloth, and went to sleep. 
Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their head, look at his closed eyes and peaceful sleep, or peaceful face, excuse me, and then going to sleep. It showed they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. This is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and also a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart, getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear and greed and aversion. And equanimity also possesses the power of renewing itself, but only if it's rooted in a growing understanding of the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings that I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring with you this evening in that as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen are the root of equanimity. The first of these is our growing clarity in understanding how the vicissitudes the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds of life, how they originate, how they come to be and manifest, how they come to be. This is the understanding of kama in Pali or karma in Sanskrit. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experiences of ease are the result of our kama, meaning the results of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, and on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We could say that we're born, that we spring out of the womb of kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, were undeniably the heirs of our kama. So for instance, a very everyday example. Just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we have totally lost control over it. And yet, in some way, it remains with us. And in some way, it inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance. We could say that everything that happens and the ease or the dis-ease in our mind and heart is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings in life internally and externally. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this lifetime, in any given moment, is due to our own mind, our motivations, and our responses or reactions to phenomena, not due to our hopes and wishes for ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. So it's one of the roots of equanimity. When we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, that we only meet our own mind and heart in relationship to everything that happens around us and within us. 
What is there to fear? This then is an opening. It's an opportunity for the heart and the mind to begin to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. That in fact we're not trapped on the karmic wheel running around and around like a little mouse. And this is the change that our practice of sila, samadhi, and panya afford us. But of course, as we've all experienced, fear, uncertainty, and insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this particular perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome thought, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might seem to be some hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the mind and heart, is a very good deed the best really, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been important for me in understanding Kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to to do good deeds. It's never too late. Some of us have probably been told maybe many times, oh, too bad. It's too late. It's never too late. And then there's the saying in English about an old uh, dog can't learn new tricks. That's not true. Old dogs can learn new tricks. (laughs) It's never too late. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. And at some point, we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our own mind and heart, the mind becomes more tranquil and more serene. As we take or we engage in this refuge, we gain the great strength of the evenness, balance, and patience of the heart of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and the various difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice, as the development and the blossoming of relative equanimity uh, occurs, we find that we have the strength, more and more strength, to endure when we need to endure whatever it is and to see clearly when that's what's being called for. And we have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over and over again, but to begin to walk down a different street. The understanding of Kama can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama to free ourselves from the, the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. 
as we more and more clearly see our own craving and our delusion and the habitual tendencies to create and engage in situations that strain and that sap our strength and sap our healthy resistance. A wholesome disgust, as the Buddha called it, arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. The fruit of deliverance of a deep and clear experience of understanding equanimity is the escape from greed, the escape from tanha, the Pali word is tanha, which is translated as insatiable thirst, the escape from insatiable thirst. So the first understanding that's the basis of a growing understanding uh, the, first under, the first understanding that's the basis of equanimity is a growing understanding of karma or kama. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and the understanding of anatta, not self. So from this perspective, there's no one, there's no self performing any deeds nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion, it's the wrong view of a separate, solid, static self, a separate me that creates suffering and that disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, meaning this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. Repeatedly. So for instance, if this or that aspect of our personality, some maybe particular quality of ours is criticized or is blamed, we might think, I'm blamed. And equanimity is shaken when we've received approval or praise for something that we've done and we think, oh, I've been praised, I'm a success. Equanimity is again disturbed. If this or that work or some aspect of our practice that we've engaged in doesn't succeed or isn't praised in the way we want it to be, we might think, my practice has failed. My work has failed. I've failed, and equanimity is shaken again. If wealth or a loved one is lost, we might think, what's mine has gone, and equanimity is shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken, in the delusion with the identification of me, mine, and I, or I am. As understanding uh, deepens and the heart opens, there's an easing of this constrictive feeling and thinking process based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine. With, of course, that thought itself maybe being quite a daunting thought. And in our concentration practice, this becomes clearer and clearer. And so we begin maybe with the small things, which it's easy to detach oneself from gradually working up to the possessions, maybe, and the goals and the identifications that we have been so tenaciously clinging to. The first time that I taught here at the Forest Refuge, uh, <clears throat> which was, it was for two months, and I was the very first visiting teacher here. And I was here long enough to really settle in 
And yet again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in wasn't mine. And it would come about in small, simple, and sometimes surprising ways. When I first got here, there was no telephone in the house. So I lobbied for a phone, which in moments felt like it was for me. And there was quite a degree of tension and of stress in this. But in truth, this phone was for the many, many, many others who would be using the house over many years. At one point, I was told that it was okay, that a phone would be put into the house. But when that would happen was unknown. (laughs) Well, at that point, there was a quick letting go. And there weren't any more thoughts about it. I relaxed, and I did really, truly feel that it didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not. Because it wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. And during the same two-month period, it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room. There wasn't any any rug at all on the hardwood floor. So Jeannie, who was the housekeeper at the time, brought the rug catalog over uh, for us to decide which rug to order. It clearly wasn't a rug for me. It wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone. We were actually choosing for everyone. And I noticed that it's such a difference, a different experience in the heart with this not that subtle contraction of something being for me, something being mine. There was an openness and a spaciousness. There wasn't any contraction. There wasn't any clinging in the choosing. And it was a lot more fun that way. So the small things that we first, at first, that we think are ours, and working uh, up to giving up or letting go or relinquishing other stickier thoughts of self. Beginning to relinquish maybe the identification with some of the qualities that we're identified with as to who we are, our personality. Now, it's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am that we give up, that we let go of. And beginning with small aspects of our personality, qualities of seeming minor importance. And very, very slowly through our practice, working up to letting go of identification, or we could say in practice language, uh, practicing detachment, in relationship to those emotions and aversions that we maybe we regard as the center of our being. And also letting go of identification with the fruits that arise from our concentration and our metta and our insight practice. Ajahn Sumedho, the former abbot, of the Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a really wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, and in this case he's talking about the critical mind, he says, oh, there's my personality. (laughs) Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me? Even including positive emotions or aversions. And even including the specific gifts with which we might regard and be identified with as the center of our being. As well as the wholesome and beautiful states that manifest through our practice. To whatever degree we abandon, to whatever degree we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am, to whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter our heart. When we realize, when we really, truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could it cause us any agitation? 
due to lust or clinging or hatred or fear or grief. Consequently, the teaching and the practice of anatta is an important guide along the way of the path to perfect equanimity and our guide along the path to liberation. Equanimity is the unshakable balance of mind and heart and it's rooted in understanding. The first understanding being that of kama and the second being anatta. And equanimity is also very much seeded and grows along the way of our samatha, our concentration, and our metta practices. And it blossoms in a profound way with uh, deeper concentration states of jhana. When we, particularly when we access the fourth jhana. And I'll be talking a little bit more about this in uh, my Dhamma talk on Saturday evening. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality or equanimity, it isn't cold, it isn't heartless, it isn't dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness, but it manifests out of a fullness or completeness of connection, and understanding. As an aid, as a nutriment for the arising and the development of equanimity, the Buddha and the Sutta, the commentaries to the suttas, offer us some very specific directions. And here are a few of these, and this is from the Buddha. We're told to listen to, approach, attend to, to recollect and go forth after monks, nuns, and laypersons who are accomplished in virtue, sila, concentration, insight, and who have the knowledge and vision of liberation. It's said that hearing the Dhamma from such people is helpful. We're told to dwell mindfully and to clearly discern states, and that if we discern states with care and with wisdom, Our energy will be aroused without slacking. And when this happens, a spiritual joy is aroused and developed. And when one's mind and heart is uplifted with spiritual joy, the body will become tranquil. And when the body is tranquil, one's mind becomes tranquil. We're told that for one whose body is tranquil and who is quietly happy in heart and mind, the mind is easily concentrated. And that when concentration develops and deepens, one looks on with equanimity at the mind that is concentrated. And the commentaries to the suttas tell us that there are some particular conditions in the whole of our life that will um, help towards the arising and the development of equanimity. And here's a few of these. Developing and maintaining neutrality toward living beings. Developing and maintaining neutrality towards inanimate objects. Not spending a lot of time with possessive people. Associating with people who maintain neutrality toward beings and inanimate objects. And then lastly, the commentaries say, to make a resolve to incline the mind, incline the heart towards the arising development and fulfillment of the perfection of equanimity. As we practice, we come to know when equanimity is in us. We come to know when it's absent. We come to know how it arises and how its development comes about. And so we practice here in retreat and at home in the midst of our daily lives. We practice with sincerity and with diligence. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and with determination. And because of all of this, 
it's inevitable that concentration and mindfulness and all of the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout, blossom, and eventually mature within us. It's our kama, we could say, our karma. So I'd like to close the talk this evening with two short pieces from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her or him? And the next piece from the Udana. For one who clings, motion exists. Motion meaning, in this case, the movement of the mind. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming or going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where, there, where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place betwixt the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. May all of the wholesome energies and the fruits that manifest through our practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.